Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Jonathan Weekly from ACU University about training. So we discuss resistance training and if heavy or light load resistance training is superior for gains. We also discuss the importance of sleep for the athlete and the role of exercise at mitigating some of the risks of sleep deprivation. And we discuss overtraining and Jonathan's own experience as a young athlete, which spurred him into researching and writing on the topic. This was a really fun conversation with Jonathan, who is Kiwi, working in Australia, but has had a ton of experience working with professional teams and also in the research realm. So Dr. Jonathan Weekly is a lecturer at ACU and an associate research fellow at Leeds Beckett University in the UK. He completed a PhD and postdoctorate position working alongside the Rugby Football Union and his primary area of research is in the topics of strength and power development, youth and team sports and has over 50 peer-reviewed publications on the topics of strength and conditioning and sports science. He currently supervises several PhD students and consults for professional sports teams and technology companies. Uh, this was such a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I will put links to both Jonathan's bio from ACU University and also his research gate where you can catch the papers that we discuss in today's interview, which is wide reaching and has common themes but are on different topics, which I think will be of interest to many people out there. Before we crack on into the interview, though, I would just like to remind you that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. This increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts, so more people get the opportunity to learn from guests that I have on the show, like Dr. Jonathan Weekly. So please enjoy our conversation. And I think the cool, the, the great thing is, is that, you know, you are performance based, but lots of, you know, your, um, obviously your field extends beyond yeah. performance. Aren't we all just athletes, mm. Jonathan? Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, having the dietetics background was a big thing for me as well. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, because it's, yeah, totally. I remember um, my sister's a dietitian too and studied in Dunedin and um, she's nice. now up in, uh, you know, Whangarei. And um, so yes. she's up there and um, doing all the um, kind of uh, it's rural. It, it is deemed rural there, yeah. out there, and uh, a lot of the indigenous and um, Pacifica health, which is really cool. And then, so they have kind of that relationship with my sister doing the dietetic stuff, relationship with you, yeah. kind of nutritiony sort of stuff. And then, yes. um, but then that's something that us uh, S and C muscle physiology guys kind of forget about often. That nutrition's a big part of it. So. 
Yeah, total, yeah. totally. Hey, Jono, so can we then um, kick off with you telling me, um, giving me a little bit of your background. So oh. we were just chatting before I hit record that you studied in Dunedin, you're from Christchurch. Mm-hmm. So how did you end up in Brizzy? Which, by the way, I love Brisbane, like, and you're in a T-shirt. Yeah. And so I'm imagining it's a lot warmer than what it yeah, is right well, now. Yeah, well, it's probably one of the coldest days of the year, and I'm still in a T-shirt. So I'm Stop pretty it. lucky, eh? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I am um, from Christchurch, as I said and I uh, was a passionate athlete, too passionate, which why is why I kind of ended up doing some overtraining sort of research later on. And yes. um, But I was given, um, not, through the, not through the lack of care from my parents, but probably not the best advice as a young athlete. I wasn't kind of uh, nurtured in a way because um, it's easy to utilise passion and enthusiasm uh, overtly as a, as a young guy. And, yeah. um, Were you rugby? rugby. Is it- yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. everyone else in yeah. New Zealand. And, um, <laughs> but then, yeah, so really, and very, very conscientious and diligent uh, on my training. And then I wanted to do sports and exercise nutrition down in uh, Dunedin. So I did that. And then I thought, oh, great. I'll, um, I'll go do dietetics over in Wollongong because New Zealand has had some issues with the dietetics courses as of late. I'm sure you'll be aware of, but it's uh, oh, no. gone rid of a Otago course. I think there's only Messi now. Um, are you serious? Yeah. I, I had no idea. That How old are you, Joe? Uh, 32. I just had birthday cake for tomorrow. <laughs> ah, amazing. <laughs> yeah. So it's your birthday tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, oh, I, hey, happy birthday. You, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I was actually thinking uh, when you said it, I was like, you could see I stumbled. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I felt like I was lying. Um, <laughs> uh, no, 32. Um, and I ended up then going to uh, the Gong, and that's a tremendous difference coming from Otago to the Gong, from to Wollongong, uh, which is oh, South Sydney. Serious? Yeah, it was such a life changing event, and um, but I also felt like I could. Um, so I was doing my masters in nutrition and dietetics, and then I um, I also thought I could um, extend myself a little bit further. So I enrolled in a, yeah. um, a second masters over in Perth. Um, nice. Yeah, and that was muscle exercise physiology and strip conditioning. And my whole life, I kind of felt like I wanted to be a dietitian, and I saw my sister become a dietitian. And I yeah. um, grew up with a large Pacifica and Maori influence, and I knew that the the benefits of nutrition for um, for our communities. And then I um, and then I was pretty good at dietetics. I was kind of like upper pack, but like middle upper pack. And then I uh, <laughs> and then I was doing this other degree at the same time. And I was crushing it and I was loving it. And I was sitting around there going, my goodness, my whole life has been a lie. Um, um, I'm an okay dietitian, but I really love exercise. So, yeah. and then I kind of had a, a I'd say midlife crisis, <laughs> I reckon around that point, depending how long I live. And I decided that, hey, exercise um, was a really good place for me to be. And um, I'm going to probably put a lot of my expertise into that bucket. But I'm still going to keep that nutrition um, side of things, which is really important. And then I picked up my um, picked up a role with uh, England Rugby Union and Leeds Beckett University, who I'm forever grateful for. They took a huge gamble on a, a funny sounding lad out from the south of from the South Pacific, and they gave me a scholarship to work with um, with them doing my PhD on uh, exercise and training for for rugby players, particularly in the adolescent space. And then uh, to my postdoc, and then. Um, my partner, who's from Sweden, she she's a real scientist. Um, she she who just graduated and finished. So, congrats to her. But she's um she took a role in um at, at Queen, University of Queensland, and so I thought, right, 
probably five or six years in the north of England enough for me and I'm going to come back to ACU up north on North Brisbane, right just below the south, uh, Sunshine Coast and I don't think oh, there's lovely. many other places I'd prefer to be. It's lovely. Yeah, oh, that sounds good. And uh, I have to say, Dono, let's hope that your midlife crisis is actually just a quarter yeah, life crisis, yeah. which we all go through. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm sure that that is, that is the case. So um, what was your – so now you're a um, a professor, a lecturer. What is yeah, your primary interest sen- at, at ACU? Senior lecturer, and uh, I work within the SPRINT Research Centre. So SPRINT is um, an acronym for Sports Performance Recovery Injuries and New Technologies. And I'm very, very much in the uh, performance. Um, new technology sort of space but performance can encompass a whole lot of things so that's really cool for me and I'm senior lecturer here Um, there's not many uh, I don't think there's many people many academics who sound like me so I'm kind of representing a rare breed over here so it's uh, it's a real privilege to um, do what I do and I genuinely couldn't picture a better job in the world It's it's the best thing you know not yeah that is great. Not, that is great. I was a lecturer for hey. many, many years, and what I loved about it was that it felt like I was just still a student and didn't actually have a job, mm. like a real yeah, totally, job, you know? Totally. Like uh, you got all the perks of um, being a student, but you didn't have to sit assessments and you got paid. Yeah. I mean, cool. yeah, I'm getting older and everyone stays the same age, so it's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. And um, so, John, I really wanted to um, chat to you, and your name popped up on my, um, t- I think it was Twitter and, um, originally, and then I went delving into some of the papers with which you're an author on um and you've said to me multiple times mickey i do not profess to be you know i'm i'm performance but yes i do have some interest in this non sort of performance realm mm. and but i i think just a general chat about some of um like the sleep and circadian biology would be awesome and of course we're going to touch on your overtraining and the athlete paper which you mentioned as as being a bit of a passion yeah, area yeah, for, for you sure. which is cool um but now like one of the um, I really enjoyed looking at your low versus high load for the benefits mm-hmm. of resistance training. I talked to so many people who have this fear around, um, or they know the benefits of resistance training, but they have a fear as to what it's going to take to actually get the benefits from them. So, you know, your paper sort of looked at, as I understand, sort of um, some of those, um, you know, what it actually takes for the health benefits of resistance training. What do you actually need to do either in a gym or sort of outside that gym arena? Um, Can we sort of start by helping our listeners understand the difference between lower load resistance training and that traditional higher load training? And how do the benefits compare? Like, how do we even, yeah, how do we even determine that? Yeah, um, I might even say some controversial things here. And um, well, I like yeah, it, Jono. I, I thought when when you when you first approached me, I thought I'd write down some notes, and I thought, oh, forget these, I'm going to say something controversial here. So I think, um, <laughs> so first of all, the first question was, you know, what's um, how do, how would you kind of define them or describe them? And when we talk about low load training or lower load training, we're talking about loads beneath fifty percent of your maximum. So if I can lift 100 kilograms, we'd be talking about you know, 49 kilograms or below. Now, higher load training often refers to loads above 70%, uh, and it's just going by ACSM guidelines. Um, and historically, we've often thought that high loads have been required to induce changes in strength and uh, muscle hypertrophy or muscle growth. And um, I'm particularly passionate about resistance training in my career. The reason for that is because 
uh, we know that resistance training is exceptionally important. We know it is like the fountain of youth. It is exceptionally important to have muscle strength and muscle mass as we grow older. It's particularly important for females. And now I've do, I'm doing a serious amount of resistance training research into females at the moment. Some really cool about training um, research into training across the menstrual cycle, which is going to be absolutely game-changing and groundbreaking um, for adjusting the results that come in. And we know, and we also know that um, resistance training is really important for uh, attenuating risk of things like metabolic disease, cardiovascular risk, and so all these sorts of things like that. Now, I've got, this is the controversial part. I actually think that resistance training, and I've got good information, good data to support this, is, is so essential as we grow older that we need to start not necessarily completely removing aerobic training, but reducing some of that aerobic training that often occurs because that aerobic training often causes a transfer from type 2 strong muscle fibers to weaker, more aerobic fibers. Uh, and we need to, and we also know that that can be, um, and it can cause also losses in lean mass, where resistance training does quite the opposite. We need to increase our, we, it leads to increased muscle fibers, uh, type 2 muscle fibers. It helps um, our gait and function. It increases the overall size of the muscle, increases the strength of our muscles. And these are all things that we lo lose as we age. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I've heard people talk about that. That's a type, so you're saying type 2 fibers are. are uh, the thing that we really need to be cognizant yeah. of, even if we don't really know it. Well, we don't need to know. I mean, yeah. the general population doesn't need yes. to know that. But they just need to know that resistance training really is important. Good. But yeah. from that sort of physiological perspective, we lose those type 2 fibres, and more yes. so if we focus on aerobic training. So it's it's almost putting us on more of a back foot if we're not yeah. cognizant of that from the early yeah. on. If you really want to hear um, uh, you know, a buzzword which is going to land me in a lot of trouble, I reckon aerobic training as we get older is almost sarcopenic. It, caused, it leads to greater losses in muscle mass and strength. Yeah, and we know that. We know that there's changes in concurrent strength and muscle fiber, uh, muscle fiber size when we do too much aerobic training. So the thing is, is that as we age, resistance training can help increase our strength, the amount of force we can produce, which then indirectly leads, well, directly leads to changes in power production, which is essential for um dailies of activity uh, activities of daily living sorry and then we also have greater muscle mass so th these this form of training is so essential so so essential bone you know not even talking about bone mineral density and all these sorts of things particularly in older females after menopause so the thing is is we really really need to start emphasizing resistance training um and there's probably been some societal constructs which have mitigated um, uptake of resistance training because it's guys that look like me walking around in gyms um, yes. <laughs> rather than you know people that look like my mum you yeah, know totally but she's the one who needs it most you know what I mean yes. so it's how can we improve our access um, uptake you know and um, you know confidence with people in the gyms and unfortunately it's it's also been the uh, domain of young teenage men rather than young teenage females as well so how we can provide greater greater um maybe acceptance or uptake or maybe you know just how can we get people motivated to do resistance training which is really really essential for our for our long-term health so Jono um a couple of things with that so I had a um conversation with uh Dr Brendan Egan from 
like Moore's University, and and he was exactly saying the same thing okay. as you, you know, in terms of the, you know, um, needing to do more sort of uh, resistance-based training, um, particularly as we age. And it's interesting what you say, because I'm just, as you were talking, I was thinking about the public health guidelines around exercise and how, you know, we're told we need to do 150 mm. minutes a week. This hasn't changed. No. Like, you know, I studied 15 years before you did and same th- I think our curriculums would have been the same. Mm. Um, and there, now there's sort of a, a more... It, do, it is noted in there that, you know, if you can do strength training, you know, you sort of do it. But it's almost like this added extra bonus yeah. rather than that's the essential thing. Yes. Yeah. And the, and the World Health Guidelines, uh, sorry, the World Health Organization Guidelines have started to include resistance training into the, uh, in, into into their recommendations, ACSM. But for many, many years, up until quite recently, resistance training was a, a byproduct. It, was, it wasn't even considered. You're right. You know, 150 minutes of aerobic exercise oh well wonderful but what about all the resistance training the things that keep your bones strong the muscles strong function yeah you know so um yeah so no you did right it's been it's been overlooked for many many years and people like brad schoenfeld and Stu phillips um Stu would be wonderful on this podcast because he's the real expert but um uh, well i have chatted to him so uh, yeah yeah he's a superstar um he is the person i um probably the academic who really got me excited about doing in this area in my career but he um they're, they're showing it's it's so essential and it, he called yeah. it the fountain of youth it's not me i yeah, took yeah. it from him so the thing yeah, is, yeah. is it's totally. a really really cool thing and important thing to have inside of your um exercise routine particularly as we age well, what do you reckon about that 150 minutes <laughs> i mean really yeah. i just think like i like i just think given what our lifestyles are like these days it is mm-hmm. hard to be de- like you have to be deliberate mm-hmm. to get in 10,000 steps yeah. you know like and then you may go for a run for example or even like do your gym work and do a little, like a little bit of cardio or whatever on top of your resistance training and you might come out with four or five thousand but then you might only accrue about another two thousand across a day if you oh, have man. a job where you're just sitting down like what what are your thoughts on the actual recommendations because you can tell probably that i think they're a little bit late yeah 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 i think um it's really really hard to provide uh population based recommendations uh, and really encompass everyone. If I did 150 yeah. minutes, I think I'd pull my hair out. I'd be going crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, two, two <laughs> yeah. and a half hours. So, like for me, I'm, I, I, I probably start I've been obsessive about exercise throughout my my history during my postdoc and PhD, maybe less so. But then I um, I love exercise so much that I might exercise for two and a half hours in a day. So you know, so but I can do that because I've got 20 years of training experience. So for someone with very little training experience who hasn't done in much exercise for 30 years 150 minutes might be quite a lot and yeah so i think it's horses for courses and i think it's really really hard to provide clear recommendations and um you know you you i think it's case by case we although there's been a lot of blowback for this term it's acute and chronic training ratios and you might have come across that if you've got a really big chronic training base it's okay to do a lot of exercise because you're used to it. But if you go from zero to 100, um, yeah, you're probably going to break. So the thing is we need to take it into context. But broad guidelines, uh, geez, it's, it's, why not 151 minutes? I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah, I know. Right? No, I hear you. And you know what? It is a little bit like um, the five plus a day or yeah. seven plus a day in Australia, you know, like because to my mind people need like – people should – 
like set higher expectations you know like I, I like you don't, no, nothing mediocre you know yeah, like what yeah. five plus a day is like nothing yeah. in terms of what we know the potential health benefit of um, vegetables and fruit which I know is not the topic of our conversation <laughs> but it's just but you're right you're right sometimes actually if you try to set um, and this is actually one of the things I say about the, the guidelines is that the you know if you were too um, if you tried to set things which were well out of reach of most yes. people, then people aren't going to bother. Yeah. And maybe this is the same with the with the physical activity mm. guidelines. Maybe having something set at where it's at gives something in yeah. a, someone an achievable goal, and maybe they'll just love it and want to do more anyway. And I think that uh, as you're saying, I was thinking about the psychology of it. Things that I don't really think about, you know. And I think realistically as well, when I went into um, professional coaching, um, you know, my PhD and all those sorts of things, I. Uh, I used to be kind of frustrated at my athletes, my younger athletes, for not being able to do the things I expected of them. And then I realized that it's so individualized. It's so, you know, it's all well and good that I've been training for, I don't know, 16, 15, 14 years by that point, pretty consistently every single day. So why would I expect someone who doesn't have that training experience to be able to do those things? And um, so, yeah, and I think it's horses for courses. And yeah, it's just trying to understand the individual and, trying not to make it too intimidating. Totally. And, uh, Jono, so are you still playing rugby now? Like, how do you spend your two and a half hours in a gym? And I, and I would have to say, I have to say, like, I know I know what, how you can because you're an academic. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you don't tell anyone we don't do too much. No, I, um, I, I, I've actually spent my whole career trying to um, outwork people because I'm not smart. So, yeah, if I'm not going to outthink them, I'm going to outwork them. But So um, I've been pretty prone to long hours in my career, but... Um, I realize my partner is from Sweden, as I mentioned before, and she is a lovely baker. And yeah. um, <laughs> that's why I'm spending so much time in the gym recently. But I've also noticed that. To counteract. Yeah, to counteract that. And I'm, yeah. there's also no excuses for me to be not doing um, world class kind of uh, practices because I am a, you know, someone trained in nutrition and someone who's trained in exercise physiology. So I should be, you know, leading the pack. Also, I look at my. Um, my ethnicity, my, yeah, I'm a male as well, and um, I'm in my 30s. I've got to start taking and thinking about my health really seriously, and I've also got to be thinking yes. about my whānau, you know, my, 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 my family, my hapū, my, my wider community around me, and how I can continue giving back to them for the long term, because if I don't, I will, unfortunately, I will be a midlife crisis. Um, so I've got to be thinking about long term for, and also while I don't have kids yet, if I ever do have kids, I need to be thinking about how my health impacts them. So yeah, yeah nice. so it's a real, it's um, in, in New Zealand, you know, we've got water and that's physical yeah. health is a big part of it. So no, I'm very, very conscious of that. And um but a large part of it is I'm um, dating a Swede, and if you ever know that Swedish people, they have a thing called fika, and fika is cakes and coffee. Uh, oh, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, what a delightful little uh, pastime they have for us that's playing footy, but they go for cakes and coffee, so too much fika for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, that makes total sense. So, um, okay then, Jono, can we... So, so if I go back then to the the, the yes. paper that we sort of initially started <laughs> talking about, low versus high load yes. for the benefits of resistance yes. training. So you're essentially saying that we don't need to go in and do the uh, super high load sort of three to no. six, for example, no. 
Um, and even as a woman, I don't need to, there is no reason for me to focus much more on the heavy load. Because I have to say, Jono, is that I, um, I've i been going to the gym for 30 yeah. years, you know, as well. So I'm, cool. I'm like, I'm a lifelong sort of trainer and I'm, I'm sort of, I'm an endurance athlete, but I love the gym yeah, as cool. well. And I love the strength training, but I've always really struggled to, because I'm very uncoordinated. I can run it in one one direction and that is basically my skill set and so everything else has been you know it's it's been learning and it's a constant work on so when it comes in the gym I get quite intimidated if I have a program that tells me to do these really heavy loads and and actually I can't work hard if I do that and I even though I might do like it'll say this is how you should feel you should feel that you have like one rir or you know rep and reserve or whatever or two or three i know that i'm leaving a lot on the bench if i if i train like that because it intimidates me and i'm scared to do that that load yeah yeah it's really funny that you say that because this this paper was under review uh for over a year it got rejected several times from reviewers because it talks about and this is my this is my thought because it talks about a controversial thing they don't have to lift heavier loads you don't have to be that you know uh uber intense alpha in the gym hey it's okay to lift lighter loads and and i think we had a torrid time in review particularly about things like that heavy loads can be intimidating and reviewers would come back and say says who well, you just ask anyone in the community. I'm intimidated by heavy loads, you know? Um, yeah, so no, I, I, I agree. And um, resistance training first and foremost, um, if you're resistance training to begin with, congratulations, you're over halfway. You know, that's the most important thing. Uh, so we need people to understand that resistance training um, isn't for the elite athlete, it's for everyone, and it can be a great thing. Now, there's a difference between getting the benefits and optimizing the benefits because I can definitely optimize the benefits with low load training and I can have very similar adaptations to high load training. Um, But even with low load training, not optimal, I can still get a lot of benefits. Now, if I want to optimize low load training to have strength and hypertrophic adaptations, so strength and changes in my muscle size, you really do need to take it close to failure. What we'd call is, you know, you mentioned two uh, RIR or reps in reserve. That means if I'm going to do, if I could maximally do 30 reps, maybe I need to do 28 or 29 or a zero RIR would be taking it to failure and they'll be doing 30. Now, the thing about that is that it's exceptionally hard. It's exceptionally taxing, exceptionally fatiguing. And I actually think this is one of the limitations of low load training. If you want to optimize those outcomes you really need to take them to failure to failure yeah and that's actually yeah. really hard for a lot of people it's quite time consuming it's a lot of volume or kilograms lifted across the entire set and it's also um it can be painful you know what i mean and i'm not talking about in the joints i'm talking that muscle that burn ouch you know run a 400 meter race and tell me how your legs feel after it well that's kind of same on your arms or your shoulders or wherever you're working so the thing is is that Ideally, to optimize strength adaptations, and I say strength because you can get just as strong through low load and high load, which is a complete divergence from what we used to be able to, uh, what we used to prescribe. Um, it's just that it's not necessary specific strength. So if I do low load training with um, uh, leg extensions, I'm not going to be as strong in the back squat as if I did high load training with a back squat. 
which makes sense because that's a skill. A back squat is a skill that allows you to train to produce force, which is important for strength. Um, and you can also maximize hypertrophic adaptation, so changes in your muscle size. And the reason for this is because as you exercise, as you pick up a heavy load, you're immediately starting to recruit those fibers in the muscles. But when you pick up a low load, so let's say 40% of your max, you're only recruiting a portion of those muscles, so the smaller, weaker, or less forceful muscle, muscle fibers. And as you get closer to failure, those smaller, weaker fibers that are helping you lift the weight load originally start to go, hey, I'm tired. I need to get my other muscle fibers, my buddies, to help support, the, and they help recruit those muscle fibers so that you can continue exercising until you reach a point where you can't lift anymore, and that's the whole muscle fiber, the whole muscle being recruited. And if you're recruiting those muscle fibers and putting strain on those muscles, guess what? You're going to have hypertrophic adaptations or changes in body mass. Yeah. Okay, so if you so you basically what you're saying is that regardless of whether you're high load or low load, you want to have that failure and that stimulus to to get to the point where it's that hard yeah so for low load yes for high yeah. load you don't need to but okay. then you gotta lift the heavy uh, loads yes because you yeah yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so you, okay yeah, so you because with a high load you're already recruiting those muscle fibers pretty much from yeah. the get-go with the yeah. low load you have to you end up recruiting some of them and then as you get more and more tired you recruit a few more then a few more and a few more until you're recruiting the whole muscle and that's why you can have adaptations that are similar to high load resistance training because at the end you're still recruiting the entire muscle. Nice. So, Jono, how does um, because I also think of techniques that people use like slowing down the tempo, um, using you know a smaller weight but slowing down the tempo to get that sort of time under tension. Like, is that going to change? Does that sort of play into what you're talking about? Is that something different? Yeah, I think um, time under tension uh, historically has been something which was very, very uh, heavily emphasised. But as I think as the research goes on, um, we're starting to realise that time under tension probably is less important. Now, I'm not... Ah, it's a bro science. Yeah, bro science. And there's a lot of it in there. But in saying that, a lot of bro science is also uh, ahead of the research. So you got yes. you win some, you lose some. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think what we see with time under tension is that we don't necessarily optimally recruit all the muscle fibre because you're kind of slowing everything down and you can't get as much volume. And the volume is really what is important um, with that low low training so yeah so low low training is completely uh you can absolutely get just as strong as with high low training um you can develop just as much muscle and to be fair to the bros in the gym they have been doing that for years you know you often see yeah, those yeah. Heads, and they come and do some arms and all those sorts of things that's what they're doing they're doing sets of 15 and 20 they're burning out those muscles and that's how they that's why those bodybuilders still get those massive big muscles even though the weights are quite low drop sets and supersets is the same sort of concept Yes. Um, so that's one thing we can start to do. Um, but the thing is, is that low loads are completely feasible. It is completely acceptable. Um, and you can absolutely get great adaptations and strength and lean body mass. However, you, to optimize it, you do need to go into the hurt locker a little bit. You do need to get close to failure. But does... You know, does my mum need to have optim optimal protein synthetic responses and all those sorts of things? No, she, she's she's my mum. She doesn't need to be an elite level <laughs> athlete. You know, she's she's yeah, she's working. She's 
he's just focusing on her health and her life, livelihood, you know, in the community. She's not going out to play for the All Blacks. Okay, no, that's cool. So if we're thinking then about someone who wants to get maybe, would it be fair to say, okay, get 80% of the benefits, which is yeah. what we're after, rather than 100%. Yeah. Let's say 100% is the elite and 80% is like your mum or me or something like that. What what would that look like structurally? Like how, what, how would I train for that? Like reps and sets and, and uh, muscles to, well, maybe not muscles to target, but maybe exercises or something? Yeah. Like do you have that sort of information? Um, yeah, and there's like many, many paths forward. And, I, I, and, you know, I think with lower load training, People are so quick to dichotomize. They are so quick to say it's them or us. It's not the optimal. It's sorry. It's not us collectively trying to have a positive outcome. It's just a tool in the toolkit. You know. So if you don't feel comfortable lifting heavy loads, completely fine. Let's still get in the gym and still get some exercise under our belts, and let's let's still put our muscles under some strain so we can get some of the benefits. So eighty percent of the way, in my opinion, is just getting in there and doing something, feeling comfortable, getting the exercise you know underway. Um, and I think, I think if you were to use lower load training, um, you've got to understand that um, it doesn't have to be lower load training all the time. It can be some heavier loads and then some lighter loads. I'll definitely do the heavier loads first because if you're going to lift a heavy load, you want to make sure you're fresh and you're not having to put yourself under too much strain and then doing the lighter loads on more isolated muscles, uh, so isolated exercises. So let's say um, you know, a bicep curl, which is working around one joint, the elbow, or a leg extension. And it's much easier to take those uh, exercises to failure or close to failure than say a heavy squat which we know yes. so yeah freaks me out yeah totally it freaks me out totally man yeah um and i think it's really important to understand too heavy and light are relative to you and me you might squat 200 kilograms i might squat 100 kilograms and that's okay and i think we just really really need to understand that you might be lifting you know you know 100 kilogram bench press your your equivalent of 100 kilogram bench press might be 30 kilograms hey and that's that's still fine that's actually that's wonderful if it's still what you need if it's what you need yeah and if you're still getting the adaptation yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah totally hey and if, yeah. I, if like even for me i use a lot of lower load training because after 20 years of training in the gym um i'm getting some niggles in my body and that's completely normal and that's fine i do a lot of lower load training i know that to get my muscle mass and keep my strength i need to take it close to failure and that's okay but the thing is, is on the bench press, I could bench 140, 150 kilograms. But the thing is, I, I put 60 kilograms on the bar and I do heaps of repetitions with that. I get my volume like that. And yeah, because it's not a competition with you right now. It's a competition with you. Hey, I'm trying to think about longevity here. Um, so yeah, and there might be certain exercises that you um, are unable to work really heavy with. So for example, I because of my lower back, I can't do heaps of heavy squats. Um, so that's okay. I'm going to put, you know, 60, 70, 80 kilograms on the bar and do 30 reps with it. Or I might just do, you know, a hundred kilograms on the bar and do five reps, but then go to the leg extension or leg press and do a lot more repetitions. So it's a combination of what I need and working around my little niggles and aches and pains too. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And like currently I'm following a program that has a lot of volume actually oh, wow. in it. And, and so much that I can't actually do it. And I 
I um I can't do it all. I mean, she's twenty three, you know, a CrossFit athlete, a programmer, and I think she's quite new to programming. But I've I can look at it and go, okay, well, if I can do two thirds of this, and I feel like I'm actually getting yeah. the the you know exactly what you described, then I'm going to yeah. be all right with that. And, for the, and really digress here for the endurance athletes, this is the really hard thing. Is that the last thing you probably want to do is low low training? You don't want the volume for low, for an endurance athlete. You've got to be doing those higher loads because we're thinking about economy because if you think about endurance performance yeah you know you 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 get a lot of you get a lot of volume already so those higher loads are so important for endurance athletes um so yeah it's uh i gave a presentation on this recently is you know you kind of want to get as strong as possible for an endurance athlete which is the opposite of traditionally what we what we think you think oh i'll do three sets of 15 because of lots of volume but really you want to be doing threes and fours Oh damn it! Oh well. well <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I like our, oh, but this is good. This is good to know. This is why we're talking. Hey, Jono, you mentioned um, that I'm um, obviously like I I didn't know this, but you're currently sort of conducting a study looking at training the menstrual cycle. So I've talked to Lauren Kalenzo Semple here before, and she's doing her PhD looking at the parameters with which you sort of you know like what is the basis behind training um, with the menstrual cycle. Um, what is your uh, I guess what is your research in that in that area? Because you mentioned it, so people would just be annoyed if I didn't actually ask you about it. It is some of the most uh, world-leading research. Um, Amazing. It's it's amazing. And people often uh, forget the sort of stuff that's going on behind the scenes. And there's a lot of world leaders in it, and we thought, wow, what an exciting opportunity to put some of our PhD students who are excellent in this space. So historically across the menstrual cycle, there has been a lot of reported subjective evidence that females um, don't perform as well. They say, hey, different phases of my my cycle, I perform better or worse, I'm less inclined to exercise, I don't want to do this, or I do want to do this, and that's often around the follicular versus luteal phase. Um, now, the objective evidence, well, there is none. It's really, it's really, really hard to do because it's so hard to do. We see, um, well, we've seen a lack of funding for it to be to be frank um it's exceptionally hard because you need to find the females who fit the normal menstrual cycle whatever that means but traditionally in research we're talking about 21 to 35 days which for a lot of females is kind of like quite limiting you know because some females have a longer short cycle than a shorter cycle and it changes um two cycle two cycle which makes it really tricky and then on top of that, you can't be having any hormonal contraceptives, which knocks out about probably 15, 50% of females immediately. Then you've got to find the people who are willing to give their bodies the science and exercise and all those sorts of things. So it actually probably leaves us, I've, I've estimated um, about 2 to 3% of the population to recruit into our studies. So what we're going to do, what we've got is two, study, uh, two students, one named Madison Pearson, who's looking at changes in uh, physical performance across the menstrual cycle. And we're doing it with proper hormonal verification because a large limitation in the literature to date is that um, we've just been guessing. We've been saying, oh, you know, you're in the luteal phase or, you know, and you're in the follicular phase or whatever, but there's no actual hormonal verification. Um, Or alternatively, the studies are so incredibly underpowered that you can't find anything. So they say, oh, there are no differences. No, you just didn't have enough people. Um, so then with Madison's work, we're attesting changes across um, in recovery, performance, and sleep across the menstrual cycle. And then we have um, Gabby Montiano, who's looking at training across the menstrual cycle. And this is, this is 
this is the reason I'm getting out of bed at the moment. It's great stuff. Um, what she's doing is she's got three groups. She's got a traditional program, which is percentage-based training. Here's your program. Three times a week, you're in the gym doing these pro, pro, um, doing this doing this program, and she's in there like supporting them and you know every, everything's super controlled. And we're looking at every single um, repetition. You know, we've got a linear position transducer or a thing that monitors velocity and power output across every single rep. We've got world-class body compositions, strength, power, um, changes in, uh, you know, pretty much every physical quality and parameter pre, mid, and post. And then we've got sleep across the entire study. And we've got, so we've got the first group, which is percentage-based. We've got another group, which is menstrual cycle phase-based training. And we've got, uh, so they might do more training sessions in the follicular phase and then less training sessions in the luteal phase. And then we've got the auto-regulatory group, which is, hey, here's your training. You're allowed to modify it and adapt, adapt it as you see fit. Um, and this this work is going to be unbelievable because we know that there's some, uh, there's no, there's some subjective evidence and we also know that there is some speculation around anabolic or catabolic changes in the hormonal melo across the menstrual cycle and we're saying there's been a lot of chat about it it's incredibly hard but we're going to go for it and we're going to do it and gabby is doing a phenomenal job in that space it's um yeah it's so wonderful to see it's getting the attention it deserves and we're doing it with proper hormonal verification with large sample sets of females everything being monitored so we can quantify everything and every change and we've really yeah. thrown ourselves into it and it's so exciting Jono, when is when are those results going to be sort of um, ready well, to be talked about? So well, it depends on depends on uh, how many people want to participate at the moment. Uh, that'd be really wonderful yeah. if there's anyone listening who want who lives in Brisbane who uh, wants to reach out. I would just love that so much because it, it it would make a phenomenal difference not only to Gabby or me as as an academic, but also to females who exercise. Um, and we and we need to make exercise more inclusive rather than exclusive, right? So yeah, so. Um, so we're starting to see uh, some of the results trickling in now. Now, the thing is, is that every single, you know, you, ha you can't just go into a study and just start training. It's like two, two menstrual cycles of verification first. And then, you know, okay, you've got to come in. You've got to, you know, you've got to have normal hormone, uh, sorry, uh, menstrual cycle length. And if, you, if your menstrual cycle, for whatever reason, and that's completely fine, goes over 35 days, oh, sorry, we've got to find a new participant. It's really difficult to yeah. get participants, so we need more participants. But if I was to speculate and guess, I'd probably say in 18 months we'll have a yeah. really good grasp. And then because of peer review, um, yeah. it might be another year after that, which is so sad, but... Honestly, we'll be trying to share these results as soon as possible. Amazing. Yeah. That sounds great, Jono. Like it was really great to talk to um Lauren about her about the the research she's doing in that in in exactly what you're sort of describing, like actually being really detailed yeah. on how do we even know and what's actually going on. I think this will really complement some of the stuff that she's doing. Yeah. And she's working under Stu Phillips yeah. too, actually. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I had chatted I had a chat to Stu very, very briefly over an email about um about her and her work and and it was actually a lot of crossover between her work and Kelly McNulty as well. I'm sure you've seen yeah, that nice. work. It's, um, the papers actually had uh, a lot of similarities and probably echoed um, a lot of take-home things, but we really need to be ringing that bell that, hey, yeah, love it. you see on the social media nowadays, oh, you know, train to your menstrual cycle. And, well, 
we don't have any evidence. But no yeah. evidence doesn't mean that there's no effect. And we need to yes, 100%. differentiate those two things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do love that auto-regulatory yeah. um, uh, piece because that's a lot of practitioners in the space. That's actually what, you know, not on the basis of um evidence for or against but actually just their knowledge and coaching you know oh my goodness and if you know if you know anything about my career auto regulatory training is a big part of what I do and um we've actually got right now a the meeting I had before catching you up was with um, one of my PhD students who is comparing a whole of auto regulatory responses and training and it's such a such a um fortunate space and such exciting to see this auto regulatory stuff going on and I will just note um it's all well and good that we can measure hormones and change hormones based on menstrual cycle phases. But for a lot of females, that's not real life. That's not feasible. We can't be taking, um, you know, urine samples and blood samples and all the time. I don't think, I don't think many females would be willing to uh, do that every day for their whole life just so that they can lift a couple more kilograms. So maybe yes. we need to say, hey, is your perception of how you're feeling very valuable because it's efficacy versus effectiveness? Yeah. yeah, total. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, Jono, um, another couple of papers, actually, and I am wary of, I don't want to take up, like, oh, we're already 40 minutes in and I've only gotten sort of like one of my papers, but it's super interesting stuff, right? Yeah. Um, um, sleep and circadian biology. And I know that this is that your, you know, it's an interest, but not, it's not your sort of expertise area. But I mean, when I looked at the sort of paper, I just thought that just a few things I, th I thought it would be great to just have your take on it, I suppose, mm -hmm. based on, on the papers mm -hmm. so firstly um and for the listeners i'll pop um links in the show notes to these papers that we are sort of discussing um so your research discusses the negative effects of disturbed sleep patterns on numerous cells yeah. and tissues and organs so can you describe these effects in more detail actually and sort of set the scene for what we're actually talking about with sleep and and um, circadian biology yeah so we we i've uh, within the Sprint Research Centre, we're really fortunate to have um, Professor Shona Helson here, who is genuinely a world leader in this space, and um, she's got a huge passion, and we've also got a great group of um, PhD students. So I'll just acknowledge that Matthew Morrison has been led that, led that paper in particular, and um, I'm very much on the muscle physiology side, where Shona's kind of got the sleep stuff, and Matt then kind of has a really good grasp of both of them. He's kind of been able to learn from us both. Um, and realistically we're starting to see that sleep is um hugely impactful in our health our lives um it's it's so important for longevity and um being able to mitigate the risks of even things like cardiovascular disease or um metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes so so briefly insufficient or fragmented sleep is a common cause of disruption to like daily biological rhythms and metabolic homeostasis, which is um, quite worrying when I when I say it because I'm a terrible sleeper and disrupt and there's so many people for whatever reason have terrible sleeps too. So yeah, hey, I, I can um, empathise. But disrupted biological rhythms then negatively impact several physiological processes, and these include things like muscle protein synthesis and disturbance to normal um, cellular. Know, physiology so things like normal mitochondrial function and when these we have these changes in the in our homeostasis um, we can exacerbate uh, metabolic conditions and changes in our, uh, you know muscle physiology so it's actually really worrying when we start to think about the um, 
the 24-7 lifestyles that we often live and how these changes, how, how these how, how these changes in our sleep or fragmented sleep or um, insufficient sleep can impact our health and our, our lives. Yeah. And, you know, John, I often th- I think about um, just over the last few years with the pandemic and how that's really shifted people's like, work patterns mm. as well. You know, when mm. they're, um, a, there is a lot more sort of remote working now where they work from home and there's not that um, disassociation between work and home and it's very easy to get it caught to get caught sort of working late at night in in careers or in jobs where you wouldn't otherwise sort of have that um yeah and I mean I know as an academic like there's very you know because of the more flexible hours potentially during the day and you've just got stuff that you need to do like I think academics can be particularly bad it's like working late into the evening as well and obviously that has implications for for the ability to sleep too absolutely yeah absolutely I'm and I'm the worst at it and like like it's so rich for me to be preaching about these sorts of things because <laughs> I've been called into like supervisor's office say you can't sleep here you, you know you, yeah sleeping in the car park because I'm an academic and I've got to pump out more research so I can support my family you know what I mean so how 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 rich is that that I'm now doing sleep research um so I can fully understand it's it's hugely important and when I think about um what the lack of sleep can be doing to my body um yeah, it's alarming, actually. <laughs> yeah. So, Jono, can we talk about, like, how does disturbed sleep shift that, shift those hormones towards the catabolic state? And and how does that then result in that reduced rate of skeletal muscle protein synthesis? Yes. Uh, I think I, you could have a podcast on this alone. <laughs> Maybe that's what we need to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, please do. yeah. We can yeah. tear it up. But um, the thing is, is that I think, um, first and foremost, uh, you know, sleep has like an intricate and bi-directional relationship uh, with the endocrine system and homeostasis. And when sleep uh, sleep affects the secretion of hormones, and in turn, sleep um, sorry, sleep can affect hormones, and hormones can affect sleep. If you know yeah. what I mean, so it's bi-directional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. These are, and and we this is common and really normal talked about anabolic hormones such as. Um, Cortisol, testosterone, insulin-like growth factor, growth hormone, um, and sleep helps regulate these changes and the normal rhythms of these hormones. Um, so, yeah, so when we have disrupted sleep, we kind of throw our rhythms out and we change the secretions of these hormones. Now, um, while we've seen a lot of this sort of stuff in mice, um, because it's a lot more ethical to keep mice up than find humans who want to stay up for days on end. Um, but for actual changes in human protein synthesis, um, it's been proposed that due to the changes in these hormones, specifically reductions in um, testosterone increases in corticosterone, uh, we see less favorable changes in protein synthesis rates. Um, and probably one of the things for me I find really interesting is it seems particularly impactful on glycolytic fibers, so fast, fast twitch fibers. Um, and these are the fibers that are most impacted uh, by, by changes in sleep or fragmented sleep or insufficient sleep. Yeah. yeah. And when we're talking about insufficient sleep, like what are we actually talking about there? Like what is, is it less than that 70, sorry, seven hours a day? Is it, um, is, is it, you know, an acute sort of thing or is yeah. it over time? Yeah, 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 like yeah, what's yeah, that? Totally. Even, in, uh, even, uh, um, 
uh, acute sleep deprivation can cause this. But seven to nine hours is probably what we tend to recommend. Uh, I'm on the upper end of that. Um, but, you know, then you look at my partner and she, I don't know how she does it. She's, you know, up baking at, you know, 6am every morning. And I just, geez, I like, keep me in bed, man. <laughs> but the thing yeah, is, is that, yeah. you know, we're all different as well. And so I think we, first of all, just need to um, acknowledge our differences and understand that we are different and some people might need more or less. And that seven to nine is normally what's recommended for healthy adults. Yeah, super interesting. You know, I've got lots of, um, you know, uh, nutrition and health colleagues and and I wonder whether sleep is somewhat tied up to that sort of type A, overstimulated, you know, just constantly, you know, like your brain just totally. is um, excited by new information yeah. and, you, and you tend to get that. Uh, it makes it difficult to unwind, I suppose. Um, and with that in mind, while, you know, yes, seven to nine hours is, is the recommended and it's what we should be getting, like... What is the role that exercise can play here? Because this is the bit that I thought was super interesting. So how can, so one can exercise mitigate some of these negative effects of that sort of reduced sleep? Yeah, so we, when we have insufficient sleep or fragmented sleep, we see reductions in protein synthesis. And we know that there are methods to attenuate those reductions in protein synthesis. So what are they? And this is based around exercise. And it's based around things like having protein-rich sources of nutrition. So, for example, um, uh, high, uh, protein sources which have high leucine, which is an amino acid, which helps stimulate something called mammalian target of rapamycin or mTOR, um, which was probably a bit too much detail. <laughs> no, no, it's all yeah, good. Cool. It's all good. Um, We've heard of mTOR. Oh, cool. Great. Yeah, mTOR is um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a pretty key regulator of muscle growth and um, protein synthesis. But um, so previous research, and there is limited research in it, but we can also speculate uh, so previous research in humans um, has shown that high-intensity interval training on a, uh, on a bike um, can be an effective method of substantially uh, enhancing the protein synthesis response in humans. And this is, so for example, what they showed was that if you normally sleep eight hours and we've stripped it to four hours, uh, you're going to have reduced protein synthesis. And then if we can do exercise, particularly high-intensity interval training, because that increases the forces on the muscle, we can actually offset those reductions in protein synthesis so we can kind of return it to where it should be. Um, the hard thing is, is that we um, need more evidence in humans to fully elucidate you know, the FIT principles, the frequency, intensity, time, and type. Um, it could be speculated, and I think it would be very, very justified. It would make a lot of sense that resistance training uh, would be beneficial because if you think about high intensity interval on a bike is resistance training you've got a resistance of the bike so it wouldn't be any different for lifting a weight it'd be the same it's all forces um but it's also really really difficult when you're super tired to be exercising isn't it it's um well it can be you know it's, it, and i think that's an individual thing you know like i know some people who are absolutely no problem at all getting like no, like they've had a really rubbish night's sleep but they're like yeah, they're just going to get to the gym anyway because it it makes them actually feel better and it gives them a little bit of a boost. Like maybe it's that um, the sort of hormone response to exercise, that high intensity stuff, actually helps lift them and sort of carry them through across. And they might be, you know, a bit buggered by the end of the day, but aren't too bad. Yeah, there. Like I don't know. Like what are your oh, what do you man, reckon? I'll be on the other end of the spectrum. I, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'll go do it because it's because uh, you know, yeah, I know. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I'm also very aware that there are different types of humans and motivating factors and yeah. I exercise because I'm an exerciser you know what I mean it's but 
people on their journey, I don't exercise. I I know I should exercise. I'm exercising because it is something I should do. I And as you kind of go along that spectrum, I exercise because this is who I am. And I exercise because this is who I am. But tell you what, those auto-regulatory uh, workouts are taking a beating on that day. I, I have to really kind of make sure I keep the volume high, the intensity high and all those sorts of things because it's really hard. You know, We know that perceptual, perceptually that when you are tired, exercise feels harder. Yeah, and that's why things like caffeine can be really good for offsetting, offsetting um, the you know the detrimental effects of um, lack of sleep on exercise performance. You know, and yeah, so yeah, and we we've done some really great research on the effects of caffeine on sleep recently. The big meta-analysis. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's led by Carissa Gardner. Yes, I t- I think I did. It, it sort of gave some really quite clear recommendations yeah. around caffeine, around exercise, and uh, on so sleep. So yeah, like cut off. We've sleep, often yeah. said, hey, that's when right. Drink caffeine. Wendy, have your pre-workout yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. That's at 13 hours, I think it was. Yeah, um, right? Yeah, wow. yeah, which is awesome, actually. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, we'll just clarify that you're not saying that, hey, go sleep four hours, you're sweet as, because you just do a high-intensity training, you'll be sweet. No. That's not what you're saying. <laughs> but, yeah, but in that acute phase, if, for example, you do, like, maybe it's, like, I mean, I've just gotten back from a trip, whereas I had, like, a whole week of terrible jet lag yeah. over there, wow. like, and I was sleeping, you know, between three and five hours was all I was managing um, so if you're in the situation where you've got that short term sleep reduction or restriction then exercise may help mitigate some of those changes notwithstanding the impact it will have on your in, uh, insulin and glucose as well which is, tends to be disrupted as part of that sleep restriction yeah, right? Yeah totally I think, um, I think what we're saying what, what, sorry, what the research is saying is that you can offset some of the detrimental effects but I tell you what, if you chronically undersleep and you're chronically tired, it's really, really hard to offset that because that's just a snapshot in time. And on yeah, top of yeah. that, the quality of your workouts will decrease as well. So the thing is, is it's you know, it's really nice that we can do it acutely, but try and sleep, deprive yourself of sleep for a prolonged period of time and look at your body mass and changes in your muscle morphology and architecture. While we don't have the research for it, you can probably see from you can it. See yeah, it. you can see it. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Like when I, because obviously I spend a lot of my time talking to people about um, improving their body composition, dropping body fat, and and people very quickly jump on a diet plan and, and follow exercise recommendations. But it's, it's really difficult to get them to buy into the idea that they need sleep or stress management, you know, like these are the two real, because it changes how you have to interact with so many other things it's not just you like you have to sort of then think about your environment and stuff like that yeah. so and yeah there's so many times um, in our lives when we have sleep restriction you know it might be oh, health parents, related. Right? parents is going to be the big one i'm thinking of too it's um you know young parents <laughs> you know yeah and uh, you're just busy you're just busy and we just need to find times when we can exercise and this is why their low load resistance training sort of stuff is so important too because a lower load might be a can of baked beans you know what I mean? And yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, it might be a seven kilogram dumbbell that you've got at home that you can kind of just get some, um, yeah, like quick arm pump on or something like that. It's just, well, it could be hell. It could just be some body body weight squats. And these these forms, these are resistance training. These are resistance training. And just because you're not doing a, a an Olympic weightlifting class or whatever it may be, or a CrossFit or a powerlifting session, it you're still doing resistance training. It's so essential for your health and well-being and this form of exercise may be able to mitigate some of those changes in sleep and maybe offset some of the detrimental effects it can have. But 
first and foremost, if I was thinking about trying to improve my health and my performance, I'd be thinking about my sleep too. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Jono, do we still have time just to quickly think about your overtraining? Brilliant, because I definitely want to talk to you about this. Now, you mentioned that you sort of dug a bit of a hole for yourself when you were younger, is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was. I remember someone asking me when I was 14, and they said, you look tired, and I, I remember thinking, um, yeah, I am really tired, and they said, oh, you, you, you're doing a bit of sport at the moment. And I counted, I had 15 training sessions. What, wait, so was it just rugby no, for you? No, it was or, water what? polo and rugby and athletics and... And the thing is, is water polo, they start you before before school. And I remember having to wake up at 3.30 or something for, for a 13-year-old. It's not good for your social, well, uh, for social, physical, mental well-being to be out at that time and go into a training session. It's so interesting, John, if I think about the way that kids are really pushed mm. in their sports. Mm. And so most kids sound a, like, a little bit like you that I also work with. They It's not just one sport, as you said, you know, it's multiple sports yeah. plus the academics. Yeah, yeah. And and some of the sport regimes haven't really changed. Like if you, I talk to parents now and they're like, the kids still swim, uh, you know, five mornings a week getting up yeah. for that sort of 90 minutes before school, yeah. 90 minutes after school. Like so much has changed in training methodology in other sports. Like, and yeah. yeah, I find it interesting that swimming, for example, for oh, adolescents wow. hasn't seen And we also know long. that during teenage years, sleep cycles kind of tend to shift. So, you know, you wake up a little bit later and want to stay up a little bit more. And that's not because uh, teenagers are lazy it's because of their biology and the th- so the thing is, is that um adolescents are a particularly um, vulnerable age because they're capable but they're also very reliant on people around them and the thing is is that you know the collisions are hard the training is hard and the volume is high so the thing is is that you know they do a lot of exercise and that can be um and if it's not handled correctly it can be very very detrimental to their not only to them then but also to their long-term health um, and, and yeah, it, it was something that I became very passionate about and I, um, I didn't necessarily want to make a difference. I don't know if I'm, I've got that much of an ego. <laughs> I don't think I'm that powerful, <laughs> but I think, um, I think I, I really like the idea of maybe trying to help, you know, awareness of these sorts of things and improve, um, exercise for adolescents. Now, as I've developed my career, I've probably just gone, oh, I just like performance. I just like helping people and lift things and run faster, but um, but my, my PhD was um, under um, Ben Jones, um, who was my primary, but also Professor Kevin Till. And Kevin Till was the world leader in uh, adolescent and youth development and exercise. So I had this really great support as a PhD student. And just um, I look at him and the work he does and so, so wonderful. And he, um, he, helps, he helps kind of kind of steady the ship a little bit in the exercise uh, in the exercise. Um, area so yeah yeah so um Jono with with that so obviously you um you know recovered at the time and and then gone on you we've developed this passion so what is it about overtraining syndrome that that is missed you know like there's vague terminology and it seems to be difficult for people maybe around the athlete and the athlete themselves to actually recognize what's going on so you know how how do we need to refine sort of how we think about this in order to facilitate a better understanding and then, then, you know, progress and prognosis? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. And I think realistically we need to be thinking about um, how do you define it? You know, you know, overtraining syndrome is defined as um, 
a long-term change in performance that is um and also psychological health so is that three to six months is uh, it yeah yeah we're talking months to years um so and the only way to do that is you need a baseline performance and then you need to go at the first onset of uh change in performance you need to go oh hey they're not performing like they used to and it needs to be outside the normal biological variation so let's say i normally run a five kilometer time trial let's just make up numbers 20 minutes and the normal biological variation is one minute let's say and then so i will hey maybe i'm running at 23 minutes and then you've got to test them again a month or two later now and then you've got to have psychological assessment so that they've actually been hey there there is psychological issue here so the thing is is it's really hard to have that baseline evidence and then on top of that when someone's feeling terrible with overtraining and they've got psychological issues to then test them and then wait a couple of months and then test them again yeah it's just not ethical so the thing no, is, yeah. and also often when you're underperforming as an athlete and you don't recognize in yourself that you're tired and you have a rubbish time, the natural thing to do is to try and train a bit harder because oh, totally. obviously you're not training hard enough, right? It's a self-fulfilling cycle, isn't it? And that we see that also a lot in elite athletes and youth. So you know, so people or, or people will say that they're lazy. So you know, hey, you're not working as hard as you used to. It's not because they don't want to. Trust me, they do. It's just that they can't. But the thing is, is they're actually defining it and actually saying mickey you have overtraining syndrome uh is impossible it's near impossible and um it's also exceedingly severe uh i i spoke with um an individual overseas recently who contacted me and said i suspect i've got overtraining and um i i gave him some advice and it was just very general this is what it is and and i'd read the paper so which was um Surprising that anyone had read my work. Um, but the thing is, is that she, I mean, but I saw also like a couple of weeks later that she was saying, oh, I've run a mile every single day for, you know, three years or something. I'm going, then you're not overtrained. You're not overtrained. You can't be overtrained if that's if that's how you're functioning. Um, I remember I spoke to someone very, very senior at the Australian Institute of Sport and they said they'd never seen overtraining. Maybe one person in 20 years. Oh, what do you think? And is this just the lack of understanding about what it is? Oh, it's or? just so severe. It's people often yeah. think that they are overtrained when they are not. You know what I mean? So people, it's often bandied around the term. It's okay, not, so know. so we think that there's this overtraining sort Epidemic. of thing going on, <laughs> yes. but most people most people aren't over. So if they're not yeah. overtraining, then what are they doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, so they might be overreached. You know what I mean? And they might just be, um, and with proper, uh, you know, they or, or they might have a an illness, a disease, which is obviously unfortunate because you've got to also remove that from the case too. Um, so overtraining is exceptionally severe, exceptionally severe, and it's very, very rare. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, and this is where we need to be careful because people do get overtrained. It's not to say it doesn't exist. It's just it's very hard to prove, if, if not possible, and on top of that, it's exceptionally tough to, to do. You, you would need to almost be training like an elite level athlete over 20 hours a week and all those sorts of things. Okay. Yeah. So so the term then, unexplained underperformance syndrome. Yes. Talk to us about that. Um, well, it, it could be a feasible way to, it could be a feasible way to, how do I say, um, summarise it. But 
whether it would change anything, I'm not sure. Um, and if anything, it could make people just say, oh, I've got unexplained underperformance syndrome and they might just keep on rolling. Is it, is, it is it a bit like, you know, when I spoke to uh, Dr. Brendan Egan, he wasn't a big fan of the term sarcopenia because it was almost diagnostic and then suddenly it labelled people. Yeah, and then, that's exactly And right. so is that a little bit the same here? Yeah, is that, yeah. You know, are we all just looking for a diagnosis? Which, yeah, and that's I don't the know. thing, that's exactly what I was kind of, I, I, I wasn't articulate enough to say it. Um, so the thing is, is that um, it's kind of, yeah, it could pe- make people start saying, oh, I've got, I'm underperforming. Oh, well. Yeah, geez, I've been underperforming for 30 years, you know, so <laughs> maybe I've got it. Uh, but the thing is, is that um, it might undersell the true severity of the syndrome as well and um, also mitigates, uh, maybe maybe reduces uh, the emphasis on the psychological elements and also um, on the severity of it. Okay, yeah. because your um, review sort of looked at how it's looked at in the literature, yeah. you know, like yeah. the like the methodology and the lack of rigor with sort of describing totally. it. Or, um, yeah. So how do we get about how how does that how does the field sort of move forward with some of these limitations? Like, what are the things that that need to sort of that need to be addressed there? Yeah, it's it's really difficult and. Um, I think the first place to start is having more objective data to actually quantify these changes in performance, to be able to quantify changes in psychological well-being. And there's been a lot of limit, uh, limitations in the literature to date because individuals are sat, sitting there and saying, oh, retrospectively, I was underperforming. And they go, you know, you you, you, are, you do a sport like wrestling. How do you underperform in res- wrestling? You might just be against a better opposition. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? There's yeah, so yeah. many factors. So um, we need rigorous kind of objective data that is being tested, not retrospectively just going, oh, yeah, I'm underperforming. It's like, yeah, because that, that's, that's just your perception. Um, on top of that, it's really, really difficult to then have people assessed over multiple time points when they feel very poorly. So... Uh, you know, it's, it's immensely difficult to test them there and then also to have psychological, accurate psychological evaluations. So in our paper, we talked about probably the one and only feasible way to monitor overtraining syndrome in athletes is probably in large government institutes or organisations. So again, Australia Institute of Sport is probably a really, probably the best place we can do it in Australia. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of changes in how the AIS now works. So it used to be a thriving hub of excitement and buzzing, but um, we've now kind of gone out to the individual regions. Um, so it's still feasible, but uh, we'd need very, very rigorous assessments through those academies or institutes of sport. So and and um standardized and standardized and we should also should note that standardized for a cyclist and standardized for a runner is different because if you put me I, I do a lot of cycling now um and the thing is, is if I did a running test I'd be all over the place I might run ten minutes and then I might run twelve minutes the next day but if for a cycling I'm probably quite consistent I know my I know how to do the exercise I'm trained in the exercise but for a rugby player that's really difficult isn't it so then we might need to have a test that's relevant for them and all those sorts of things um yeah so it's it's incredibly incredibly hard and the most feasible way is probably working alongside 
um, institutes or academies of sport um, because we've got huge number of popular, huge populations in these institutes and programs. Um, obviously, you cannot ethically induce overtraining syndrome in people, mm. so you need to watch it in the wild and then to watch something in the wild but also intervene by testing them sporadically and then to be forcing testing them on them, potentially unethical as well. So the thing is, is we just, uh, realistically, if we'll ever see it, you know, to the definition, I'm unsure. But there is some really cool research that has gone on, which hasn't gone by the definition, but has done as well as it could. People, Someone um, called Kediani in um, Brazil, um, and they did really, really large uh, kind of um, advertisements to a large group of um, CrossFit athletes, and they kind of almost self-diagnosed themselves quite rigorously. It was very, very thorough, and then they had to go in and be objectively uh, assessed by the, the research team, and they published something like 14 or 16 papers using that population, so they sliced it every single way. Um, so that was quite enjoyable, trying to put that puzzle together. <laughs> but, um, but um, and... Uh, also, there was some. There was a there was a cross country skier in Norway um, who uh, a multifaceted team is around this cross country skier, and she is um, I think the most successful winter sport athlete ever, and she clearly was experiencing some form of overtraining, and they talk about how they brought her back from the brink of that back to performance. And she is a phenomenal athlete. You know, she's, yeah, geez, my goodness. But they, they, while they couldn't prove it, they could pretty much say, well, her performances were here, her performances were here. This is how we've done it and brought her back. And there are strategies which we can use, which I would be very confident would help uh, reduce um, overtraining syndrome. Um, yeah. Yeah. But in the small percentage of people that have in it. In the small percentage or or even mitigate or, or mitigate the risk of it as well. Because um I think it's kind of like um overtraining syndrome would be like a a ball of uh different strengths, you know? Yeah, and, totally. It could like it means different things for different Yeah, I think or it so. could come from a different place. It could come from it could be exacerbated. So if I pull one string, the other strings will be pulled. With it, and then if I pull another, yeah, and and but we trying to untangle that is really important. And the work by Kajiani, they um had things like really low hours of sleep, you know, exceedingly high training volumes, um, exceptionally low carbohydrate intake for the amount of exercise that they were doing, and yeah, paleo, those sorts of things. And that's all well, yeah. I'm gonna leave that to Louise Burke, the true expert, and that sort of stuff. Um, who is such a phenomenal. Um, expert in sports nutrition world, but she, yeah. um, but you know, she, she, even she would say, "Hey, you know, carbohydrates are really important for the high intensity exercise that yeah, she's doing." Yeah. So, and and are we not just talking about like relative energy deficiency? Like, like, ah, there's, like, there's yeah. so much crossover between all of these. And, and that's the thing. Maybe you know, it is, and then you, you know, are you just suffering from relative energy deficiency as well? So yeah, you can't, yeah. it's such a, a hard one to define. As, as I said, it's like a ball of strings. You kind of like kind of unwind it and then you're going, oh, it's this, it's this, it's this. So I, overtraining syndrome, and you used the word, um, what was it, unexplained underperformance syndrome. It really is unexplained. 
you know, it means so why did my performance drop all of a sudden? I'm training hard, I'm eating, I'm sleeping, all those sorts of things. But my performance is down, I've got psychological issues, I can't perform anymore. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh it's a really it's a really tough one. And OTS is such a minefield. Um it's not to say and again I really must emphasize it's not to say that it doesn't exist. It's just that the evidence is so hard, if not impossible, due to the definitions. Okay. Yeah. So where are we at then with this? Uh, with overtraining? Yeah. With oh, so, what are the next? So you know, like yes. um, on the basis of of the the challenge and defining it, and then um, and even like potentially the low sort of prevalence. Like, what's the what is the practical implication of of I suppose your paper and, yeah, and yeah. stuff for the athlete? The, the practical implication of this is that we need to do better. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need to do better. Yeah. We need to do better as um, in our monitoring and surveillance of it. We need to be working alongside major uh, governing body institutes to make, to mitigate any risk. And if we do see it, at least we can document it. Um, on top of that, we also need people to be aware of the severity of it. As I was saying, you know, if you're running a few miles every single day and you're saying you got overtrained, no, that you, you don't. Unfortunately, That's you, not. something else is going on. Something's going on. Yeah, it's not to say it's not to mitigate. Uh, sorry, yeah, to reduce the the experience that you're having, but it might be different. And then also it's really, really hard to completely remove it from um, a disease or a virus, you've seen bar or something like that, those sorts of illnesses. So we just need to be really conscious that it's really um, unexplained and it's really, it's just so hard to monitor. Ah, oh, total. Well, Jono, um, we've covered like three quite different topics um, here today, which is great. Which is which is why I really wanted to chat to you because you've, you're involved in so many different projects, um, and you can speak on a lot of um, a lot of different uh, on a lot of different topics, which is which is awesome. And obviously, you work with a really experienced and and very. Um, uh, like high performing team as yeah. well at ACU and, and all your interests. Uh, I'm super excited for the research that you mentioned oh, that's coming wow. out. Where is the best place for one people to find out more? Any of our Brizzy peeps to find out more about that study that you're looking for participants, but then also best place to sort of catch you in your research? Yeah, so I think probably the easiest place to get me is uh, Twitter. So Jonathan Weekly dropped the Y at the end and put a one there for some reason. And and then um, I've finally kind of gone on the train of Instagram, which is Jonathan underscore weekly underscore PhD. And it's one of those things which uh, I'm not happy enough to be on TikTok, but I know just enough about technology to be able to do Instagram. Um, Oh, brilliant. Well, look at Bill Campbell. He was in the same boat and now he's like amazing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, it's the well-esteemed um, people to be around <laughs> compared to. But I think if there's anyone in Brisbane who would be willing to participate, um, mums, sisters, girlfriends, cousins, cool. oh, wow, bring them on because we're trying to make a difference to 50% of the population. Um, yeah. And it's so much more important than... You know, that rugby player who just wants to jump a little bit higher that I probably worked with for so many years. It's, um, and that's wonderful. It's really, really good to see. So, no, any help would be great. Nah, that's awesome, Jono. Look, really appreciate your time this afternoon. Um, and we'll pop links to your Instagram, your Twitter, your Sprint um, uh, Research Centre, and, of course, the papers that we that we talked about. So Thank um, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mickey.
Alright team, hopefully you enjoyed that conversation uh, and it was really great to get the insight from people researching in the field into these topics which I think are broadly applicable to many of us out there. Next week on the podcast, I have returning guest Marty Kendall and we discuss satiety, sort of carrying on from my interview with Dr. Ted Naiman. Um, this is an area which Marty knows so much about, so I was really happy to be able to speak to him again on the topic. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram, Threads and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or head to my website mickeywillardin.com and book a one-on-one -on -one call with me or sign up to one of my meal plans. All right guys you have a great week. See you next week. <laughs>